I haven't been preaching for very long compared to others. <clears throat> but one of the most interesting things I think you can ask a preacher to do is tell them a story about a time they were interrupted while preaching. Those always make for interesting stories uh, about interruptions. But can you imagine interrupting Jesus while he was preaching? I imagine most of us here would not want to be put in that position of interrupting Jesus. What could possibly be so important that someone was driven to interrupt Jesus in the middle of a lesson? Well, that's the context for this parable that we're going to study this morning from Luke chapter 12. Now, in Luke 12, verse 1, it tells us that on that occasion, there were thousands of people who had heard Jesus was in a town, and so they, they were thronging to come listen to Him. There were so many people that people were being trampled in the crowd, just trying to get up there to Jesus and to hear what He had to say. And on this occasion, Jesus was preaching a masterful lesson. It's a beautiful lesson. And He begins, He talks about the importance of sincerity of heart, your, your religion, your faith towards God has got to be real. He talks about your value uh, in the eyes of God, how God values you even though you may not be somebody who's that important. And he talks about loyalty to himself. If you are loyal to me, then I'm going to confess you before the angels in heaven. But if you deny me, then I'll deny you before the host of heaven. And I don't know where Jesus was going, where He intended to end this sermon, but I'm almost grateful for what comes next. In verse 13 of, of Luke 12, it says, Someone from the crowd said to Him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I can just picture the scene here. We talked about there's thousands of people pushing up to see Jesus. And all of a sudden, here comes a man frantically pushing through the crowd. And I can just picture people saying, man, we've seen others who were desperate to get to Jesus, who had terrible illnesses or family members on the brink of death. We better make way to let this guy get up there. And so I imagine everybody making a path only for this man to run up and say, Jesus, tell my brother to give me the money that I am owed. <laughs> and I'm glad for this interruption because it turned into one of the greatest lessons about money that's ever been preached. Now, in this culture, uh, often what would happen is when a father passed away, the inheritance would go first to the oldest son and from there it would be divided among the rest of the siblings. And so it seems that this is the younger brother of the two or however many there are. And uh, he wants to get his share of the inheritance. Now, I don't know who was right or wrong in this situation. Maybe he deserved to get this inheritance that was being withheld from him. But what I do know is this man was so wrapped up in this, so concerned about the money, he thought it was important enough to interrupt Jesus 
And he comes to Jesus and he wants a solution for his finances. And he thinks that Jesus can give it to him. Jesus can solve his money problems. And that's what was consuming his mind. And you know, money has a way of doing that. It has a way of consuming your mind to where that, that can be all that you think about. All that you're concerned about is money. You know, in some ways it seems unavoidable just because of how our society is constructed and how society has operated even back to Jesus' time. Money's been around for a long time. It's a, it's a commodity of life in any society. You get paid in money. You got to pay for things in money. Later on, you're going to go grocery shopping or something this week and you're going to pay for it with money. You just can't escape it. And so money factors actually very frequently into Jesus's teaching. Um, it's, a, it's a frequent subject of his parables. You think about the woman who lost a coin and so she lights up all the lights in her house so she can search for that coin. I'm told there's something like 2,000 verses that deal directly with the subject of money or possessions. So this is something the Bible talks about and is concerned about. And that's because money is not inherently good or bad. Money is neutral. Money's just an object. You know, it's just a piece of paper. But it can become good or evil depending on how we view it and how we use it. And if we let it dominate our attention, if we let it consume our attention, then things are going to go bad very quickly. And we see that in this man's relationship with money. So that's the subject of this parable, this teaching Jesus is going to deliver. What kind of relationship should we have with money? Jesus is not going to get involved in this specific situation. In fact, he says in verse 14, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? So he said, it's not my job to legislate in this matter of your inheritance. But he's going to address the root of the problem. Verse 15 says, He then told them, Watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus saw greed in this man, and that's where his request was stemming from. And that was a problem. Jesus got to address this because if you have greed in your heart, it's going to come between you and God. So let's start reading this parable in verse 16. It says, Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, What should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Now I want to point out here, it's important to note, this, the problem wasn't that this 
man was rich. It wasn't a sin for him to be rich. It, it wasn't a sin that he was a successful entrepreneur. You think there's, there's a lot of guys in the Bible who were rich and successful. Uh, Job was extremely rich, and that blessing proceeded from God. Likewise with Abraham. He was very rich, and yet he's called a friend of God. So it wasn't the riches that were the problem. The problem was this man's relationship with his money. And you look in verses 17 through 19, just take note of all the personal pronouns in there. This man's got an eye problem. He's got an eye, a serious eye problem. It's all about I and my things and what will I do for myself. You see, he's hoarding in excess of what he needed instead of using these possessions for good. There was another problem. He thought that material wealth was going to satisfy his eternal needs and his eternal security. He thought, if I have a lot of wealth and things stored up, it's going to preserve my life for many years. I get to live a life of luxury, eat, drink, do whatever I want. He forgot there was somebody else to answer to. And he forgot that God's ownership of his stuff superseded his own. God doesn't factor into this decision-making whatsoever. You know, we read in Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, it says of God, For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. God says, I own everything in this world. I created it. It's mine. And He's just lending it to us for a time. You know, it's, you can know this intellectually. You can look at Psalm 50 and say, I understand that. God created everything. So, Logically, everything belongs to Him. But it's a whole nother thing to really believe this and then to factor it into how you live and how you think and how you plan and invest for the future. It becomes very different when you start to think about your money in this way and you think in terms of, you know, God you have really blessed me this month. Thank you. I praise you for that. You've, you have cared for me. Will you show me an opportunity that I can take this extra blessing and show it to somebody else? Or you think, God, it's been a hard month. I didn't make as much as I thought I was going to make this month. It's a little tough to get by. I'm going to put it into your hands. I'm going to let you worry about that, and I'm going to concentrate on serving you. Or what about this? God, somebody stole some of your money today. Somebody stole some of your money. I'm going to bring that to you in prayer, and I'm going to give it over to you. See, it becomes a totally different mindset when we're thinking in, in that way, that these possessions really come from God, and they're only lent to us for a short time. 
this man in this parable, was his soul was in jeopardy. Verse 20, it says, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You see, he was foolish because he put his trust in money instead of in God. The problem with that is money doesn't last forever. Stuff decays. Stuff can be stolen. It can be destroyed. And if you try to put your faith in that, it's going to fail you. In fact, I love what the wise man Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 and 19. He says, I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. Solomon says the problem with your stuff is eventually your stuff's going to go to somebody else. You're going to die and it's not going to be your stuff anymore. Either that or the end of this world comes and it's all just going to be burned up. It's all going to be destroyed. That wealth will not carry on into eternity. But here's the problem. Your soul will. And that's what God says to this man in Luke 12. He says, if we go over to the next page here, <clears throat> your soul is mine. Your soul belongs to God. Your soul will be required. You'll have to give an account for the things that you did with your life. And think about it, friends. You are primarily a spiritual person. You have been given a body, but you are a soul. You are a soul. And that is what's going to carry on into the next life. This rich man was foolish because he didn't invest in his soul. He bankrupted his soul to fill the needs of his body. And he believed that uh, fulfilling those temporal desires of his body would satisfy the void that was in his soul. And because of this behavior, God says, you're, this very night your life is demanded of you. His life would be required of him. There was no guarantee in laying up treasures that it would extend his life. And so verse 21 here says, That's how it is with one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now Jesus goes on here in Luke 12 to describe or to explain what it means to be rich toward God and how you do that. You have to put your confidence in God first. And he gives this beautiful passage we've probably heard before. He talks about, you know, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll wear because God's going to take care of you. If he cares for the flowers of the field, he cares about you. And the message here is you will be free to be rich in charity towards others who are really struggling when you are not worried 
about and consumed by these fears for your own security. When you put your trust in God. Now, I have to admit, I've never really worried about these things, or I've, I've never had to worry about where my next meal was going to come from, truly. Living here in 21st century America, it's never been a question of what is if I will eat, but what am I going to eat, you know, or when, I, when am I going to eat next? I've never had to worry about what will I wear, but, you know, what am I, I going to choose to wear? You know, what outfit will I choose today? So friends, we need to think about this. This teaching applies to us. If you live in America, statistically you're rich compared to most of the rest of the world. If you have a secure roof over your head and you're not worried about where your next meal is going to come from, you're a, you're a rich person in this world. And I've seen that in, in my travels abroad. I've experienced that firsthand. And so this, let's not think that this teaching is just for people who are rich. You know, this isn't just for Elon Musk. This is for me, too, as, a, as an American, as a person of the middle class. And this thinking about possessions will dominate your thoughts if you're not careful. Jesus says you need to invest in your soul first and foremost because that's what's going to carry on into eternity. That's what's going to be required of you on the last day. And it won't matter how much wealth you have accumulated, but what you did with that wealth. So we can see very clearly the personal application of this parable. We need to be mindful of our personal finances and how we invest that. But I also want to think, I, I want to take this in a little bit of a different direction here. Let's think about how this parable might apply in our use of the church treasury. Because I think it very well could be. It could very well be applied to how we spend the Lord's money too as a congregation. You know, I, I know congregations, I have met congregations before who amassed great stores of money. And they were very proud of that in telling me how much was in their church treasury and how much they had uh, accumulated. But then you get to talking and you find out they don't have any plans to spend it, really. It almost seems like they're hanging on to it just for the sake of that number in the bank account. And friends, that is an attitude that should concern us. We don't have any right to go digging into the, the finances of another congregation, but we can think about our own congregation and uh, be mindful about our money. You know, we should be concerned about how we spend the Lord's money. We should be cautious of that. Uh, we've heard a lot of teaching about how to scripturally spend the church treasury. And I think we've done a good job of explaining that over the years. We understand there's things it is appropriate to use the treasury for and things that are not appropriate. But sometimes people are so scared of misspending the Lord's money 
it paralyzes them from ever spending it at all. And I'm, I'm not saying that that should justify spending it incorrectly. It's not better to spend it incorrectly than to never use it. But just that we should put more thought and we should put care into how we spend the treasury. It is laid up for a purpose, and that's to help Christians who are in need, to help support the spread of the gospel. And so we need to think very carefully about this parable and how it would apply to the treasury, because we don't want to get to the last day and face the Lord. And, and He asks us, now you, you tore down your barns to build greater so that you could accumulate a great treasury, but what did you do with that? How did you help the saints with that money as, as it was intended? How did you spread the gospel as it was intended? And friends, our souls could very well be required of us based on whether we mismanage the Lord's money or not. I want to consider one other parable that is in this same context uh, of personal finance. This one's a lot trickier than the other, I'm going to have to admit. This is one I've been thinking about for a while, and I finally feel confident in presenting what I think it means. But maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to do my best. This is over in Luke 16, in verses 1 through 13. Jesus, it says, Now He said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He said to the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told them. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. Then the master praised the unrighteous manager because he'd acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you've not been faithful in worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's add verse 14 in there too. I think it's important. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at Him. So what are we to make of this parable? This may be one of the most difficult parables Jesus ever taught. 
We have this story of a man who is a steward or he's a manager of a household. And what that means is he was the one who was in charge of the finances of this household. If you remember in Genesis 39, Joseph, when he was sold into slavery in Egypt, was bought by Potiphar, the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. And Potiphar made Joseph his steward or his manager over the household. And Joseph was so good at it, Genesis 39 verse 6 says, Potiphar didn't even know where his money was going. All he knew was what was set in front of him on the dinner table every night. He had so much confidence in Joseph. And that was a common practice. This man would be put in charge of the finances and he was given free reign to do what he needed to make the household successful. In many cases, he was even considered part of the family, just as uh, any child would be. But this is a crooked manager. He's wicked. And he has been squandering his master's possessions. And the master finds this out, so he calls him in. He says, it's time to have an audit. You're going to have to give an account of what you've been doing with my money, and you're not going to be manager much longer because you've been misusing my resources. And so this man thinks, I've got to do something because I'm about to be kicked out. I don't fancy the thought of manual labor or, or begging. Ah, here's what I'm going to do. So he's still in power. So he calls these debtors in and they begin to go through the books and say, I know you, you owe my master this much, but just cross that out, erase that, and we'll put down half as much, you know, or we'll give you a little 20% discount. And in this way, he, in a way that was cheating and defrauding his master, made friends with others who he hoped might take him in after he was fired. And in this, the master praised his unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. Now, this is very confusing, but I think we need to focus on the points that Jesus brings up in his explanation. That's going to help us understand this parable. This man is not being praised for cheating his manager. He's not being praised for his wicked actions, but he's being praised for his shrewdness in what he did when he found out that there was uh, impending judgment coming against him for his actions. What he did was he called these other people in and he used this money or these possessions which were not his to make friends that would secure his fate after he was fired. That is what's being praised here and that's what's being commended in this parable. The children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. What it's saying is this man knew how to use money and knew how to use possessions which were temporal, were going to be taken away from him very soon, to make friends that would secure his future his fate after he was fired. What Jesus is telling us is 
how much more shrewd should the children of light, should God's people be in using their money, their possessions, which are not their own, they belong to God for good purposes, to win people over to God so that when we get to heaven, we're going to see them. They're waiting for us. Think about this. You know, if you continue on in Luke 16, they have this, uh, there's this teaching for the Pharisees. But we get on just a little bit further down. We read about the rich man and Lazarus, a story that's familiar to us. What did that rich man not do? He never cared for that man, Lazarus, who was a beggar, laid outside his gate for days and, and months and years on end. And yet this man never used his wealth to help Lazarus. And so as a result, when they both die and they both go on to eternity, Lazarus is not there waiting to welcome the rich man in. In fact, Lazarus is over in paradise while the rich man goes to torment. The rich man did not make investments with his temporal money that would have brought him comfort and peace in the next life. I believe that's what Jesus is getting at here. He wants us to understand worldly wealth is temporal. It's going to fail. And in fact, it's not even ours to begin with. It belongs to God. And God wants us to use what is temporary for the benefit of those who will go on with us into eternity. We should use our money and our possessions to make friends, to, to assist us in winning people over to God. How do we do that? How do you do that? Well, is it even possible? We read over in 2 Corinthians verse 9. Now, this is talking about the collection, but this could be applied to how you spend your money personally, too. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 11 through 15, says, You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service, that's the collection for the saints he's talking about here, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. What an amazing description of what that free will collection was going to accomplish for their Christian brethren. Paul said, in supplying the needs of the saints through the collection, through your money, they are in turn expressing thanks to God. And in fact, I love verse 13 here, through this giving of money, 
they were confessing their belief in the gospel of Christ. That's amazing. Your pocketbook is one way that you can declare to people that you're a Christian, and that is through generous giving, through showing charity and mercy to those who are in need. And in doing so, you may win somebody over to Christ. You may cause them to ask, in, in the midst of such terrible inflation, what caused you to, to spend that money to, on me, to, to buy me food or, or water, something that I needed? Why would you do that? Don't you know <laughs> gas prices are, are $4 a gallon? And you can tell them, I did that because of God. Give glory to God because it's my faith in God and in Jesus that prompted me to pour out charity on you today. That's what Jesus is talking about here in this parable in Luke 16. Now you may be thinking, I would love to do that. I'd be excited to do that if I just had a little more money. If my pocketbook just wasn't as tight as it is right now, then I'd start doing that. Now think about verse 10 here. Jesus says, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. Jesus says, no matter how much money you have, start there. Start with what you got in showing generosity. Because if you can prove you're faithful in a little bit, God will know, everybody will know that you'll be faithful in much. So think about that. Start with what you have. Work with whatever you have. You know, you can buy about 30 water bottles for, I think, $5 at Walmart, maybe even less if you got a Costco membership. That's not a very big investment to make at all, to have a great impact on somebody who just needs a drink of water. And in doing so, you can proclaim the gospel of Christ to that person. I have one more thought here, and that's from Revelation 14, verses 13 and 14. This is talking about the heavenly scene those who have died and who have gone on. It says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. They're at rest in the Lord, not because of the wealth that they accumulated or the stuff that they brought with them to heaven. In fact, you can't bring anything with you when you die. But your works will follow you. So make investments with your money. Think about the investments you can make with your possessions that will carry on into eternity, that will follow you into the next life, and that will enrich your soul. Those are good works, works of charity works of generosity. And what an amazing thing it may be when you pass on and you get up there walking through the pearly gates and you see people in heaven 
who you influence to be there through your kindness, through your generosity. And they'll be there to welcome you where worldly possessions will not exist. Friends, I hope that you consider seriously Jesus' teaching here about money. This is not a suggestion. These are commands from the Lord. And they, if we carry them out, will be for our soul's benefit. So I ask this morning as we close, are you ready to meet the Lord? Have you been investing uh, your time, your money into heavenly treasures, which will not perish, which will not pass away? The place to begin is by becoming a Christian. It doesn't matter how much you may influence somebody to Christ to go to heaven, if you haven't been investing yourself, you won't get to reap those benefits if you don't invest in yourself too. And so I want you to think carefully if, if you need to be baptized, we need to do that. Let's get it done. Or if you need to make a change in some lifestyle, think about that. Now's the time to pray to the Lord, to set things right in your own life so that you'll be ready when your time comes. And you never know when that will be. So friend, if you have a spiritual need that we can help you with as the congregation, why don't you come forward right now while we sing this song. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from the Oyster Bay Church of Christ in Crawfordville, Florida. I hope you've been blessed by its message. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, or if you'd like to hear more preaching by the members of our congregation, visit our website at www.obcoc.org. I'm Hayden, and on behalf of the congregation, we wish you a blessed day.